You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Kyle Buller. He is co-founder at Psychedelics Today. We're going to talk about the world of psychedelics. We're going to talk about education. We're going to talk about the industry. We're going to talk about really where we are, both from uh, kind of a practitioner point of view, from a legal point of view, from an industry point of view. Uh, Kyle's had some really interesting experiences, both uh, on the practitioner side and on the education side. Uh, and it's really exciting what they're doing with Psychedelics Today and, and where this is going, a very much needed facet of the industry is, you know, really getting information out there and getting good information out there and helping people navigate this world that, that we're in with psychedelics. So with all that, Kyle, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me here, Bruce. I'm excited. Yeah. Absolute pleasure. Before we dive into everything you're doing today with psychedelics uh, today, let's get a little background. How do you get into psychedelics? What was your kind of passion for this? Give us the story. Yeah, I'll try to do a little condensed because sometimes I can ramble on and make it a longer story. But um, I was always really interested in consciousness as a young kid, really into dreams. And then um, when I was 16, I was a sophomore in high school, I got in a really uh, bad snowboarding accident. Uh, I ended up rupturing my spleen. Uh, oh, doctor said if I came in five or 10 minutes later, I would have been dead on arrival. I ended up losing about five to five and a half pints of blood internally. Wow. So by the time they got me to the um, ER, I was having outer body experiences. I remember being in the, in the CAT scan machine, um, slowly slipping away. And the doctors are telling me not to fall asleep and to stick with them. And all I could keep thinking about was how cold I was and how much pain I was in. And this voice came over me and said, uh, you're going back home. You're going back to the stars where I'll come from. And this physical life's going to cease to exist, but you'll continue continue onward and this is just a, just a transition. And after that experience, um, you know, I woke up in ICU and I had no idea what just happened. And it took me a really long time to try to process what that experience was. Rode a high for quite a few months, just being really thankful to be alive. But at 16 and when you're a sophomore, it's also a really confusing time, right? You're trying yeah. to form your identity, your friends and, and all that stuff, which left me in a huge existential crisis. And so I fell into a pretty deep depression, a lot of existential despair, a lot of suicidal ideation, and this feeling of wanting to go back home, um, this feeling that I was feeling when I was dying. And then so I think I was 19. Um, and I had this experience with psilocybin, um, really didn't know much about it besides, you know, what you hear from friends and, and whatnot. And this experience helped me to kind of recontextualize my near death experience in a way it was like I relived dying. Um, and I remember coming back from that scratching my head going, you know, how the hell could somebody eat something that grows from the earth that could replicate death all over again. <laughs> yeah. So I, that got me intellectually curious. I and mean, I, I kept thinking, you know, there's 
therapeutic potential here? You know, if people could have these types of experiences, like, could that impact humanity in an interesting way? So I took that curiosity. I started just digging into the literature at the time. I came across like Ram Dass and Rick Strassman's DMT, The Spirit Molecule. I stumbled across the work of Dr. Stanislav Grof. And then I enrolled in a transpersonal psychology program as an undergrad in a little school up in Vermont, studied everything I could about psychedelics, got training in breath work, felt like a, a undergrad of Hogwarts of like a psychedelic yeah. Hogwarts program. It was, it was really cool. I love it. Yeah. I did some psychedelic education there, created a program, a 16-week college course, and then um, the following year after that, taught another class called the History of Psychedelics, and then did my master's in counseling um, with an emphasis in somatic psychology, worked in the mental health field for a bit, um, and then... Joe and I met in 2000, that's the other co-founder of Psychedelics Today, in um, mm -hmm. late of 2015 and started Psychedelics Today in 2016, so that's the short condensed version. <laughs> Uh, so one particular question there, just because you, you mentioned it and you have a, a very unique experience here. You, you said it allowed you to kind of relive this near-death experience you have. Do you feel like that was your personal experience of psychedelics? Or is, do you feel like that is kind of fundamental to psychedelics is having this kind of almost, you know, being able to kind of investigate or feel the idea of death or, or this kind of super strong ego dissolution kind of thing. Like I'm curious how much do you feel this is yours versus the general experience that people have? I think it's both ends. Like obviously it's well part of my narrative and my own yeah. like history and trauma. And it's something I'm constantly trying to integrate and process. But I think what started to get me interested was, you know, I think it was you know, maybe like a year to, it was around the time, like, uh, it was maybe a little after that Johns Hopkins started to publish studies around the near death kind of terminal illness, the anxiety. And then looking at some of the literature, like if you read um, Stan Groff's book, The Ultimate Journey, it was about his time at Spring Grove um, yeah. and treating people with near death anxiety for terminal illness. And people were having these really profound mystical spiritual experiences and helping them to confront death. And if we look at some indigenous cultures, you know, they sometimes saw these as transitory tools to yep. help us to kind of practice dying before dying in, in some sense. And so, you know, obviously it's, I think it's like very well charged in my personal narrative and not everybody experiences that, but, you know, I think they can be used um, to kind of practice dying before dying in, in a sense. Um, yeah. If, if we're primed for that, maybe, you know? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So I'd like to kind of dig in a little bit more about, what actually motivated you to start psychedelics today and like what was the strategy or, or where did you see the gap like how did how did you kind of figure out why you wanted to do this and then what what you actually wanted to do when you looked at the market yeah joe and i really just started as a little passion project the original idea started off as we wanted to create a website to have like files from some of our teachers talks and so we we thought of it as an archive project and then it started to shift a little bit you know we were going to some of these uh, psychedelic conferences in the early days around like 2010 2011 2012 and it was obviously very science oriented which makes sense because they really needed to, to focus on, on the science there. And they weren't really, nobody was really talking about the work of Stan Groff, uh, the, the breathwork technique, holotropic breathwork, or um, aspects of transpersonal psychology. And so Joe and I said, you know, this is also like part of like what we're really interested in. We think it's a really important part of the field because people are going to have these really profound transpersonal experiences and, you know, where are some of the resources for it? So we ended up just kind of following that and, you know, yeah, 
yeah, one of the, the big motivating factors was to kind of um, amplify and promote transpersonal psychology in the work of Stan Groff and, and Breathwork. And it just kind of started naturally taking form, you know, it just started off as a little passion project. We weren't really thinking, you know, this was going to be a business or anything, but we did feel that, you know, part of the field was missing this transpersonal um, aspect to it, which makes sense because in those early days, you really needed to focus on the clinical research and not talk about transpersonal phenomenon because, you know, sometimes it does get a little strange and, and maybe woo-woo at times. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so tell me a little bit about, you know, content in the beginning, how things evolved, where you are today. Give us a little bit of the journey that you've been on um, in terms of what you've been putting out in the world. Yeah, you know, I think the content, you know, we started off with just some friends and colleagues interviewing them just around their experiences in psychedelics. And so that was also part of it. it was like, you know, as a field that's growing and evolving, what type of conversations would we want to hear? And so we started with, you know, some friends, colleagues started getting more experts in. And then we started to dip into the education world a bit. One of our first classes we launched was in 2017. Um, and it was based around the concept of self-care and integration. <clears throat> and we felt that there was a need to learn more about this concept of integration. Um, it was just kind of really starting to take form at that time. And I was just in, I was volunteering at MAPS running their integration list in 2016. And so yep. we were thinking, you know, there's not a lot of resources here. Let's, let's interview a bunch of experts in the field and think like how they're conceptualizing that and, and offer that to the community. Um, and so that's kind of like where we started. And you know, it's really grown um, over the years. You know, I think we have well over maybe f at this point 5.6 million downloads on all, all of our podcasts. Um, we have close, I think, over 12,000 people in our education platform. And we also launched a, a more in-depth training program. We usually would do, you know, four weeks, six weeks, nine week programs. And 2022, we launched our, our 12 month uh, training program, Vital. So things have really uh, ha has grown um, over the past few years. And I think it's also thanks to how the field has been evolving. And, you know, if you ask me, you know, when we started this, you know, would you see yourself be doing this? And I'd say, no you know, because we weren't, we weren't thinking of it as a business, you know, it was more it was like, you know, this, these are our interests and, and we just want to like have fun with it. And it's been really exciting to see the field really expand and, and grow over the past few years. Exciting. Yeah. It's, so it's a wild yeah, ride. Sure. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the audience. Like who, who are you finding you're engaging with? Like what kind of products content are they, are they engaging with and why? And then like, I guess a little sense of the business model here. Like, how are you making this, you know, a going concern and, and sustaining yourselves? Yeah, business model is, is typically just really based off of education sales. And that's been our primary kind of income. We do do some, you know, smaller events and we do some media tr uh, stuff like, you know, doing paid podcasts or media, some sponsorships, advertising. Mm -hmm. But our primary uh, source of income has been in the education um, realm. And as for audience, it's very mixed and sometimes it's hard to really kind of get some of that data, um, you know, yep. from Lipson and some of the hosting services. But, you know, j I'm just thinking about a lot of the folks that have come through either through email or just through our um, education program programs or people just reaching out to us, I would say it's a mix. You know, you have folks that have been operating in the underground. You have students that are just interested in getting involved. You have people that are trying to make some sort of career shift uh, in their life. Back in, what was that, 2018 when uh, Michael 
Nolan released his book, it was like a ton of people were coming out of the woodwork, especially from the older generation saying like, you know, I was around, you know, in, in the sixties and, you know, I put this part of my life on hold and, you know, I just read Michael Pollan's book. And so, you know, we had a lot of folks in the older generation kind of coming out of the woodwork again, um, getting excited about it. And then, the professionals, you know, we have a lot of clinicians, therapists, wellness coaches, doctors, and all sorts of different trainings um, as part of our audience. So it's, it's very mixed. But I would say a lot of our education is also focused towards professionals, um, whether you're a licensed professional or you're in, in the wellness industry. But in our vital program, we're also pretty uh, inclusive and people that don't have any sort of professional license are also able to join. So yeah, we're pretty eclectic, I, I would say. Yeah. And where do you think the future is at this point? I mean, as you kind of look at where psychedelics are going, what what is this industry going to need in terms of resources, education, training, and, and where do you want to be playing? Yeah, we're going to need all of it, right? So something <laughs> something that, you know, if you asked me a few years ago, like, you know, how do I get involved in the field? I would have probably mentioned that you should, you know, go get your master's in counseling, social work go get a PhD, either in research, something in the psychology field. Um, so you can be well positioned because that's where the market is really going to be in the psychotherapy world. It's changed a whole bunch. And as a, a, a psychedelic business owner, you know, we're seeing the need to, you know, want people from all sorts of walks of life, right? Like as a business owner, it's like, I, w I would love, you know, accountants that are psychedelically literate, lawyers that understand the field, you know, people that are in graphic design that, you know, understand the lingo. And so as the field evolves, there's going to be all sorts of different niches and people are going to get involved in, in, in all sorts of different ways outside of the, the medicalization of it. And, you know, the medicalization, the psychotherapy um, aspect is going to be a huge part of it. But we can also look at how the field has been evolving in the past few years with decriminalization initiatives throughout the different states they're mostly local ordinances that are passed. And so there are communities that are starting to decriminalize this and, you know, doing more kind of community healing, you know, right? People are kind of taking it into their own hands. And now we have states like Oregon and Colorado that have just, well, or, yeah, Oregon passed the adult use model, measure 109 for legal psilocybin to receive at service centers. And that makes it a little bit different because it's also outside the medical model, right? Um, yeah. Somebody to become a facilitator in Oregon needs to go through a training program, but they don't don't necessarily need to hold a professional license and doing psychedelic assisted therapy versus psychedelic facilitation is looks a little bit different in, in Oregon. And then here in Colorado, they, they did something similar with the service center model, uh, legal above ground services, but they also pass a decriminalization bill, which um, has opened up for more community models. And so there's going to be kind of lots of different ways to get involved. If we look at the legal sector, we're going to need to look at, you know, um, kind of manufacturing distribution. You know, it would be interesting if there was retail, you know, I think retail to start is really just going to be at the service centers. But you know, it would be interesting to see things kind of take hold, which you, you kind of already see that, right? You do see consumer goods yeah. and consumer products are being sold at bodegas and smoke shops and this and that. <laughs> um, will a legal bill be passed? I don't know, maybe that would be exciting to, to be able to do that and get safe supply. Supplies. That might be, you know, another decade or so or, or longer. Um, Canada, some folks in Canada are really pushing the limits there um, and yep. opening up shops. So I like to I like to say that there there should be a diverse um, ecosystem as a psychedelic you know field grows. And how are people getting involved now? 
mostly in the above ground, you know, media education, you know, a lot of money was going into biotech and, and development. And then, yeah, uh, training in, in the psychotherapy services, research. So a lot of people get, uh, doing clinical research. And then now with um, some of these legal services coming on board, you know, we're going to start seeing more facilitators enter into the market in those legal states. Yeah. I, I guess, how do you see this market playing out? I mean, we kind of have, we kind of have a couple of buckets of kind of the more pharmaceutical medical kind of model. We've got this kind of modernization of a shamanistic journey model. And then you've got this kind of more uh, like recreational, maybe personal performance. You know, I'm not necessarily dealing with a in a therapeutic way, but really like how do I use it to kind of accelerate learning or growth or ex exploration? Like how do you see these things evolving? Do you see some of these becoming more or less you know, kind of popular or prevalent and like, like what might, like what might facilitate or get in the way of some of those things? It's an interesting question. And I like to say, you know, if you, you want to get involved in the psychedelic world, you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and uncertainty, yeah. right? Because we just don't know uh, most yeah. of the time. I think laws can change, laws are passing. As I mentioned, I mean, I would love to see more of a, a diverse ecosystem. I was really mm -hmm. excited when Measure 109 got passed because it took it outside of the medical framework, which, you yeah. know, some people were really opposed to and saying, you know, there needs to be more research research done and, you know, only people in the medical world should be kind of administering and facilitating these types of services. But I mean, if we have to be really realistic too, and you know, if you're listening and kind of take a, a pulse on your own use. Where have you done mm -hmm. it? I mean, the majority of people probably haven't had psychedelic assisted therapy services or yeah. sessions, right? Most people are probably taking them with friends in nature. They're exploring for their own kind of self-exploration and, and, and healing. And I think we do have to be really honest about that of how have many of us got exposed to this? It wasn't in a therapy room, you know, and people still yeah. found healing and self-discovery. And so, and that's why I also get excited about some of the decriminalization initiatives because it, it helps to deprioritize, de you know, criminal penalties for people wanting to explore their own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I want to see like a diverse ecosystem here and, and not just kind of keep it in the medical world. And I also have to be, you know, pull back uh, for myself too. trained as a therapist. I'm not practicing at the moment, but you know, there's a part of me that was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to just keep this within like psychotherapy and then have to pull back and go, wait, like, yeah, no, that's just me thinking like I want to kind of like own the field in that yeah. in that way. Right. And so, yeah. you know, if we if you do hold um, any sort of license like that, again, having to be really honest, because, yeah, most of my experiences were not in a psychotherapy setting. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think the fear of that is is you know, are there enough safe uh, guardrails, right? And being really honest about the risks and benefits. But I think that's where education comes into play and really educating people around, you know, the risks and being honest about it too. Like, I do think there will be a lot of psychedelic fallout over the years um, as this mm -hmm. becomes more mainstream. I hear about it all the time, people getting harmed, abused, people having too powerful of experiences, some facilitators just wanting to dose people at like the max dose for, you know, huge, huge huge ego dissolution. And we have to be honest, like people will get harmed. And I think mm -hmm. part of it is like, how do we create that safety net for when that does happen? Yeah. And I think that's the fear, right? Like the sixties yeah. happens all over again. So the majority of like fear is like, I think coming from the folks that have lived through the sixties and they don't want that happening again. And so yeah. there is a lot of conservative beliefs around that, which is fair, right? Like we are yeah. working with 
prohibitions still, and these substances yep. are still illegal. So we have a lot of stigma to push against. Yeah, I mean, you you bring up, I think, an interesting conundrum we're in, which is, you know, ha- having done both sort of shamanistic work and uh, having worked with, uh, in a more clinical setting with their psychotherapists and stuff, like, it, it's interesting because the, while the psychotherapists have more kind of experience with kind of therapeutic processes and kind of dealing with, you know, kind of the impact or the insights coming out of this stuff, they don't know much about the actual experience itself or the administration. But on the other hand, the the shamanistic kind of traditions have really developed art and understanding and, you know, really, I think, nuanced and, you know, thought through protocols around administration, but don't really have as much on the, okay, what do we do with the insights from a therapeutic point of view? So it's this kind of, depending on what you're trying to do or where you're willing to take more risk, you kind of have some different choices. And the other one I find is on the risk side of it. I mean, if you look at the toxicity elements, you know, most of these things actually have very low toxicity issues. It's more about like, what is the psychological impact of the experiences you have and then how well you can kind of integrate those things, process those things. So it's, it's not like a... You know, it's not like other, I think, general pharmaceutical kind of toxicity issues. It's, it's, it's a very different paradigm that I think we're, we're dealing with when we deal with risk. Totally, totally. Yeah, mostly it's in the emotional and kind of psychological, spiritual risks, right? People just yeah. getting open and up too much. And then, um, you know, my, my thing is always like, our Western culture doesn't really have a good framework or cosmology for holding this, right? Like yeah. maybe some indigenous cultures do, but on the flip side, there's, we can learn from each other right we in one of our vital lectures we had uh dr joe tefer join us and somebody asked like you know are the sh- are some of the coranderos that you're working with um interested in like western psychology and he's like yeah they kind of want to learn some of those concepts yeah. as well and it's like how do we not say one is better than the other and come together and learn from from each other because there's you know b- both yeah both perspectives are important as this field evolves and, and grows yeah I'm curious how much you've uh, have covered or gotten into some of these kind of mu- new compounds, new molecules that people are, are looking at of this kind of like triplet psychedelics or, you know, being creating compounds or, or uh, you know, kind of solutions, I'll call it, that maybe don't have as much of the perceivable psychological effect, yeah. but theoretically have some of the underlying kind of neuroplasticity effect and things like that. I mean, is this an area that you're interested in? Where, where do you see that playing? I don't spend too much time in it, but I am interested in it. And I think, yeah, the term that the people have been using is like neuroplastogens, yeah. maybe what they're calling it. And yeah. there's a lot of critique, right? Like, you know, coming from my bias from the transpersonal psychology world is like, we kind of need those transpersonal experiences um, yeah. for maybe some deeper healing. But on the other side, I mean, you think about a population of folks that suffer from cluster headaches or some yeah. sort of like pain disorder, right? And, you know, do they want to be taking LSD or psilocybin consistently and having these big, profound spiritual experiences all the time? when they're really just trying to treat like their intense, intense headache that, you know, some people really want to try to kill themselves over because the pain is so intense. And so I think, you know, if psychedelics, um, like the, the pharmacology around that can open up doors to like new, like, uh, advancements in, in biotech, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, I was definitely on the side of like, Oh, that's so dumb and this and that. And after listening to some like pharmacologists talk about it, it got me to, you know, go on the other side and think about, 
other populations that could really benefit from this. Because, you know, there's also this really interesting perspective from a transpersonal approach, and maybe from an indigenous perspective is I was chatting with a woman a, a number of years ago on the podcast, and it was kind of offline a, a bit. But they're saying that with the people that she studied with, with ayahuasca, they wouldn't drink ayahuasca all the time. It was only when the community really, really needed it. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, every time you, you engage in psychedelics, you open up a door and yeah. you know, you're know you kind of bringing certain energies into the community. And so the community had to all be in agreement that you know it's okay to, to go in there. And this is something from our Western perspective, we don't think about at all. And it's like, you know, what type of doors are we opening when we are going um, into there? And you know, I've definitely had some weird kind of experiences like that. You know, you have an experience and then just strange things start to unfold over you know, the next few days and weeks and you go, the hell's going on here? And so for somebody that is needing to maybe treat pain or, or you know, really a really intense illness like that, you know, do they always want to go into those realms? And I think yeah. that that could be a benefit for some of these, uh, you know, neuroplastinogens or, yeah, plastogens. Yeah, interesting. And where are we? I mean, I, you know, I know you're, uh, you know, have a lot of focus on the educational side. I mean, I think one of the challenges that we certainly have identified in psychedelics is, as we scale um, kind of access to this and start to, uh, you know, engage broader kind of segments or audiences that are interested in using psychedelics in different ways, um, you know, they generally, you know, most of the protocols involve some kind of therapeutic process around it. But, uh, you know, the, the potential number of people that <laughs> could benefit from this far outweighs the, the current number of people that we have that can help with administration totally. and integration. Like how, how do you see that playing out? Like, are we going to just have to train like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of therapists? Do we did move to different kind of therapeutic models? Do we develop different protocols that allow for people to do it themselves? Like what's the I think there? yes, yes to all that. Right. So like, as I mentioned, like that diverse ecosystem, like, you know, I would love to see an ecosystem where we do have clinical use and there's going to be folks that really need a clinical container thinking about folks that like have had pretty significant trauma or their, you know, their depression is just so significant where they can't do it in a group setting. They need individual care with maybe two therapists and, you know, to feel safe enough to, to go into their realms. And so, you know, we, we need that clinical container for folks. And then for other folks, you know, like, you know, the organ model for, you don't need a diagnosis. If you're curious around exploring psilocybin, there's a framework for that. You know, then you have like the religious use model. Um, people are using it for their religious uh, use in church for kind of deepening their their connection with God or however they're defining that within their religious mm -hmm. sect. And so, yeah, for the clinical container, we're going to need to train tons and tons of therapists for this, right? We're going to, and for those that are, you know, operating in all these other frameworks, we're going to need to create protocols. We're going to need to create like best practices for folks so harm doesn't happen but you know harm happens everywhere it happens in the medical world it happens in therapy at times right um, it's inevitable but you know how do we create some of those best practices and so you know again thinking about a more diverse ecosystem that helps to bring in access is going to be super important because if we just think about the the medicalization of it it's going to be so expensive you know I, I forget what the numbers that you know the MDMA assisted psychotherapy is looking at it could be anywhere between like 15 20 30 thousand you know, after a round of treatments, you know, hopefully insurance picks that up. But not everybody is might not want to go through that, right? They might they might want to go through like some sort of group process with um, a community that they're part of. Yeah. 
And to stick, I guess, that within the realm of psychopathology, something I always say, it's like, you know, you have a big experience with psychedelics and then you kind of trauma box it. Oh, you know, that experience that you just had remind, you know, could, you know, be oriented to something that happened during your childhood. Right. And I think that that runs the risk whenever, you know, we're, we're just putting it in that mental health uh, frame. Um, and so, you know, people are having these maybe big transpersonal experiences and maybe they want to do it within a, 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 a religious container or community container that holds that cosmology a little bit more. And so, I mean, this is going to be the, the huge thing is like, how do we, how do we create access? Because it yeah. is expensive. You think about it. It's a long process to sit with somebody if you're doing it that way. But I think that's where like interesting group and community models can, can be really helpful. But again, training is going to be super important. There's a lot of people that are, don't get any sort of training and they're yep. just <clears throat> learning off the cuff. And, you know, I think that's where harm happens as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Yeah. All, all really interesting questions. I'm curious what's on your roadmap. I know you've got things coming up in 2024 here. Give us a little insight on what to expect from psychedelics today in terms of what you've got coming out. Yeah. So we're going to continue on our media side. So constantly uh, publishing articles and podcasts. Uh, we typically do about two podcasts a week. We'll probably continue to do that. Hopefully um, get more in, in the video realm as, as, as well. Um, we do have a YouTube. We do do video, but I would love to see us do um, maybe um, more video. Um, I think the culture is is moving towards uh, video as well. And then on the education side, continuing to offer all of our education. um, We have our kind of introduction, navigating psychedelics for clinicians and wellness practitioners. That's a nine week program. So it's a really great entry point for people thinking about wanting to dip their toes in the water. Like, I just don't know if I want to invest a bunch of money into a long training program. And then really kind of continuing with our 12 month vital training program. And then as states are coming online, you know, we're looking at state approved um, programs for facilitation. Yeah. And so that's the way it's probably going to operate. More states are going to, um, you know, m- pass these bills and then there's probably going to be state regulation around it and people are going to have to, you know, if they want to become a facilitator, go through that. So I like to say like our, our main vital program is um, really a program within um, psychedelic informed practice, harm reduction, integration, and really teaching people around being more informed, understanding the importance of harm reduction practices, tips and techniques, and then also that integration, like helping people to integrate their experiences. And so I like to say, you know, really just trying to get people more psychedelically literate and competent so that they can go serve their communities, whether you're a licensed professional, helping your clients make more informed decisions around their use and helping them to integrate their experiences if they've had a really challenging or profound experiences to community activists, educators, um, people that are, you know, in the business world to go and help, you know, educate who they are, are working with in their communities. Um, and so, you know, we're just really hoping to continue continue with that and then our retreats as well um, uh, and and doing some more breathwork retreats and, and all that stuff. So um, I'm excited uh, for the future uh, of Psychedelics Today and our vital training program and also, you know, the field in general, um, you know, things yeah. are, are, are rapidly evolving and growing, which is really exciting. That's great stuff. Kyle, if people want to find out more about you, more about Psychedelics Today, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, you can check out just psychedelicstoday.com. If you're, if you're a podcast listener, you can check, just type in Psychedelics Today wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and on YouTube. And then if you are interested in um, Vital and uh, training specifically, um, our website is uh, vitalpsychedelictraining.com. But you can get there if you just go to psychedelictoday.com. There's an education tab that will bring you to our main kind of education platform with numerous different courses and then our, our uh, separate Vital training program. So yeah, Psychedelics Today uh, is probably the best way. And then you can go find all those other places from, from that website. Perfect. I'll make sure that the information is in the show notes. Kyle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. <laughs>